I had to make sure my cell phone was off. I didn't want Jimmy McKinney texting me in the middle of my message. Just teasing, Jimmy. I love you, man. Yes, thanks for the ear trimmer. Today, um, you know, I, uh, I know Pastor Steve is out. As you well know, Clemson lost, so he needed some time. <laughs> Just teasing, Pastor Steve. You are so loved. But there are cries within the audience of pain. So, hey, you know, listen, uh, let me, uh, let me just jump out there real quick and, and tell you sometimes there is the temptation as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, to, to have two different kinds of uh, moments with uh, the people that he loves the most. Um, and I, I think there is the temptation in front of me even, even now. I could just switch up uh, the message and go somewhere else. But what I'd like to share with you is just a quick story. We, we had a friend who told us this story about a buddy who flew into a village that he was familiar with back home in Alaska, and he, he landed and, you know, uh, got out and, you know, was thankful to get into the village that night, and, and he, went, he went to a buddy's house to crash on his couch, which sounds all fine and dandy, uh, and then in the morning, because it's winter, he's got to go out to the plane and warm the plane up, and they normally do that with a little propane heater stuck within the cowling of, of, the, of the engine compartment, the engine bay, so that all of those fluids would warm up, and, and you could start your plane without breaking your plane, all, all very wise things to do, of course, and so this is what he does in, in the morning, and he gets his propane heater going, and he goes back to his uh, friend's house, and he, and he starts to make some coffee and um, stale coffee, no doubt. And somebody, you know, one of his other friends that he hasn't seen in a while sees his buddy's plane parked out on the tarmac. So he, he runs over to the house knowing that he's staying there that night. He, he knocks on the door. He, he, he sees his buddy and he says, oh, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a long time. And so he invites him in and they sit down on the couch. You know, he gives him a cup of coffee and they sit there and they start to drink the coffee and, you know, eight or 10 minutes go by. And, and the buddy who just showed up and, you know, found his friend at his other buddy's house, you know, he says to me, he says, hey, listen, there was some smoke coming out of your plane when I first got there. And, um, you know, uh, it, it might be on fire. I'm not sure. They've been sitting there eight or 10 minutes having coffee. And he just now decides to tell him, hey, your plane might be on fire. Well, he rips out of the door and goes out and finds his plane is engulfed in flames. And so I would just present to you this morning that we could have one of those moments where I just sit down on your couch, there's Anthony showing up to, you know, shoot the breeze and have a good time and chew the fat or whatever metaphor you have. And you, you probably don't have as stale coffee as they have out there. But, you know, we could have one of those conversations or I could immediately tell you, hey, the plane is on fire. Which, which message would you rather have, right? This is like a choose your own adventure, not really. I need to go with my notes. So will you pray with me as we jump into this? Lord, we thank you for your great grace on our life. There's not a single one of us here, Lord, that doesn't need to hear this message. I've been challenged by you, and, and Lord, I, I do kind of feel like, Lord, as, I, as I've been scrubbing off, you know, some of the grime and the dirt from the world, uh, I pray, Lord, that this is beneficial for your church, your people, the people you love. In your name, Jesus, I pray a blessing, and I do ask for your help. Amen. So the basic premise is that you don't fit in or you shouldn't fit in, so you should stick out and stick up. And to kind of build really kind of a weep opening argument, I'd like to quote Bill Maher, who said, religion must die in order for mankind 
to live. Now, those are the words of the TV host and the atheist, Bill Maher. We, many of us are very familiar with this guy. In 2008, he put a documentary together designed to make religious people and people of faith look like complete fools. In fact, in that, he called them terrorists. Now, you look at that quote one more time. Religion must die in order for mankind to live. That's not an uncommon premise uh, to have pushed at us here and there within our culture. But if you were to kind of go back in time, it's very familiar, not that much different from Karl Marx, who in 1843 said religion is the opium of the people. I'm believing you probably are familiar with that quote right there. That's the founder, Karl Marx, who, who would propagate this idea of Marxism. After Marx came on the scene and razzled and dazzled all the people in Russia, uh, the folks there, the followers of Karl Marx, yanked all the religious teaching from the school system, and they outlawed, get this, criticism. Can you imagine that? Anybody who would speak out against atheists or agnostics, they were punished. They burned down 100,000 churches in Russia. And so the clergy of the country demanded religious freedom, as you might expect. And because they demanded religious freedom, what did they get? They got the death sentence. Now, you and I would think that this happened many, 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 many years ago, like a thousand years ago. But the truth of the matter is this happened between 1917 and 1935. 130,000 Russian Orthodox priests were arrested. 95,000 were put to death by firing squads. And that is recent history. In college, as a political science major, my advisor and uh, professor described to me how conservatives are often targeted, um, like me, uh, because they would like to see us change our minds and our opinions. And um, by stating that, it didn't seem very manipulative. It just seemed like something they were just kind of putting out there. So it was out in the open. But I did spend quite a bit of time with my advisors, and I did have a good time, you know, hanging out with them in a uh, non-classroom setting. It was a good thing, and I would actually spend time with them. But they did hope that through their teaching and through their influence that I might adopt their beliefs and standards, which seemed to be kind of a mix of liberalism and big government. And, and I, I now see, and I kind of saw the irony even even back then, where you see how classic liberalism would, would never, you know, really succinct well with socialism, but those were things that they liked to kick around, things that they said they believed in. And on more than one occasion, I found myself confused, and more than one occasion, I found myself confused on topics. I know, though, that that is part of the game to confuse you, especially in that college environment. And if we're getting down to the brass tacks, down to the facts, and many, if not most, of our colleges and universities, the aim is not just to confuse you, but it is to dismantle your belief system. And now, dismantling our belief system happens to be the aim of people both outside the church, and there are some people with inside the church who want to dismantle our belief system. And 
On one end of the spectrum, you have these progressive liberals, right, on the left, and the, on the other end of the spectrum, you have Christian deconstructionists, all who want to marginalize those who would claim the Bible as their belief system. They would like to marginalize those voices. They would like to shut those people up. They would like to shut most of us up. That is their agenda. In short, they want us to conform. They would like us to knuckle under and go along with the program that they're presenting. But here... Here we have years and years, decades probably, of uh, seed planted to help condition our country to believe this way and to do these things and to move in this direction. I think of psychologist, the psychologist Nicholas Humphrey, when he was lecturing at Oxford University, I want to read to you part of his speech. He even admitted that uh, these people were his target, that we would be his target. He said, moral and religious education, and especially the education a child receives at home, where parents are allowed, even expected to determine for their children what counts as truth and falsehood, right and wrong. Children, I'll argue, have a human right not to have their minds crippled by exposure to other people's bad ideas, no matter who those people are. Parents, correspondingly, have no God-given license to enculturate their children in whatever ways they personally choose. No right to limit the horizons of their children's knowledge to bring them up in an atmosphere of dogma and superstition, or to insist they follow the straight and narrow paths of their own faith. In short, children have a right not to have their minds addled by nonsense, and we as a society have a duty to protect them from it. So we should no more allow parents to teach their children, get this, the literal truth of the Bible, or that the planets rule their lives, then we should allow parents to knock their children's teeth out or lock them in a dungeon. And I want you to understand that shocking statement. He said children have the right not to have their minds addled by nonsense, and we as a society have a duty to protect them from it. So we should no more allow parents to teach their children to believe, for example, in the literal truth of the Bible than we would allow parents to knock their children's teeth out or to lock them up in a dungeon. It's alarming to me that they would equate, he would equate teaching your children the Bible with child abuse. Yet this is the same ideological stance as communist Russia. This is the same ideological stance as any totalitarian regime. And I would argue that this is the posture of so many in power in America. So we should be aware. We should be on the lookout. You know, there is a method to their madness. Their first trick up their sleeve really is to redefine vocabulary, to redefine words that we like and we admire and repurpose those words Noble, lofty-sounding words that nobody would argue with. Who would oppose equality, right? Who would dare speak out against freedom or, or science? The problem is, is the meaning they pour back into those words, really, that are vastly different than the original understanding and the original meaning of those words. When the redefinition of science disregards the scientific method, then we really do have a different definition of science. So they'll use vocabulary that you're familiar with, but they begin by redefining it. The second trick up their sleeve really is that they use this trick really to uh, lay down a gauntlet for you and I. They stigmatize their opponents. If you don't agree with them, they'll label you. 
They will call you, they will vilify you, and they'll call you names. They'll call you things like homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, misogynistic, sexist, and racist. And by the way, we as believers don't label other people, right? We don't latch out there and and fire back with our own insults and our own words. We don't do that. We shouldn't do that. But if you say something, they'll label you. They'll vilify you. Because if they can label somebody as phobic or unscientific, you can then perhaps strip them of their free speech. And maybe, just maybe, even get them banned or canceled on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever, you know, big tech platform there is. So this is the premise. You don't fit in. You shouldn't fit in. You should stick out, and you should stick up. Look with me at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, part B. Therefore, I urge you, this is Paul, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A better translation, I think, might even be the Phillips version that says, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, right? So how do we do that? How can we fight the temptation to conform? How can we stop ourselves from being squeezed into the world's mold? How can your voice and your presence stand against the culture's agenda? Well, fortunately for you and me, there's a great example. There's this little guy named Daniel in the book of Daniel, and he shows us how to do this in Daniel chapter 1. Now, We have time restraints, so we can't read and comment on the whole chapter. Some of you should, you know, breathe a sigh of relief, right? I'd keep you here all day. But we can allow this young man to challenge us with his example. And we can see that the Holy Spirit has ample Bible to convict us with this morning. So let's break this chapter up into about four phases. Would you travel with me through these four phases? Phase one, really, I want to begin with the predicament that Daniel is in. The predicament that Daniel is in. Now, let me give you kind of the long and short of the situation. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has gained a great power. He's gained all the power, really. He's overthrown everybody in the Middle East. Uh, He's taken captive Jerusalem, and and he's brought some people with him back to Babylon. And some of those people are Daniel and his friends. So really, he's looking for servants for his palace. That's the setup here. That takes us into verse 4. Read with me. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted, and all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians. The king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. The three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Look with me at verse 6. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. Uh, To Hananiah, Shadrach. And to Mishael, Meshach. And then to Azariah, Abednego. So, If you'll allow me, let me to fill in a couple gaps here. A battle has just taken place. One of the most important battles, famous battles, if you will, in history. If you're a history buff, you'll you'll know the Battle of Carchemis in 605 BC. This is an area in present-day Turkey. And it's where Babylon defeated uh, the combined armies of Assyria and Egypt. And when the battle was over, Nebuchadnezzar was like 
kind of large and in charge. Uh, he was the new sheriff in town, just kind of picking off the smaller kingdoms as he saw fit and as he wanted. And one of those was Jerusalem, right? The kingdom of Jerusalem. So in that same year, 605 BC, he attacked Jerusalem. Then he did it again in 597 BC and again in 586 BC. I mean, like this guy just went on a rampage over the few decades he was there. The last time he did it, he destroyed Jerusalem, and then he burnt down uh, the temple, or he burnt the temple. And on 605 BC, that's when Daniel and probably his friends were kidnapped from home, and they were taken 1,600 miles away to live in the courts of the Babylonian king. And that, to us, should sound like a great distance away. I know that you could take one flight there today, 1,600 miles isn't that much, but that would be a lot of mileage back then. You know, it might be 60 days of traveling if you could cover 25 to 30 miles every day on foot or livestock. So that is a great distance away. So he's a great distance from home. He's a great distance away from everything that he knew and loved. And may I remind you personally, that you are a great distance from home yourself. Your home is in heaven. This earth and all her wares are temporal pleasures, my friends. Beware of becoming so enamored with this life that you forget you don't really belong here. This isn't your home. You're a great distance from home. You don't fit in. You shouldn't fit in. You should stick out and you should stick up. So Daniel was a great distance from home and so are you. Nebuchadnezzar had four things that he did. He had kind of a four-tier process, if you will, to get to these kids. Number one, he isolated them. He took them from their home, their friends, their parents in the temple and their religious influence. And he sequestered them in a new environment. He isolated them. Number two, the second thing he did, he indoctrinated them. He re-educated them. Notice it says that um, they were taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Uh, that's like a free college education the government's paying for, right? But the goal was not just academic. The goal was to reorient their way of thinking to a Babylonian worldview. The literature of the Chaldeans promoted a Chaldean worldview of, of many gods. They would advocate that there's not just, you know, one God that they were taught about in Israel and Jerusalem, but there are many gods. And so their worldview would change the thinking about God for many of these young people, about life, about mankind. So many of these children were really being indoctrinated. They were being taught in their mind and in their heart. Archaeology, this is interesting, has also shown us that the Babylonians practiced divination. They would look at the stars and they would predict the future. Think of your horoscope, which should not be your horoscope. That's witchcraft. That's divination. Don't tamper with that. That will mess up your life, really. They would take the livers and the entrails out of the animals, and they would put them on a plate and let those you know, things wiggle and jiggle around, and they would use those entrails and those, those, um, those pieces of meat to kind of determine what the future might look like. They would use those things. So Daniel and his friends were taught all about that in school. Basically, it was a three-year cultural assimilation course to get them to forget everything that they had learned as kids. And I don't know for sure, maybe the comparison kind of slopes off here a little bit, but I, I, might, I might kind of make the argument this sounds a little bit like college, right? Sounds a little bit even like our education system. There's more than some subtle undermining taking place, right? 
It's not just about the information, but it's about the assimilation, the indoctrination of our children, of those who would sit under that authority. So these young ones were isolated. They were indoctrinated. Number three, the third thing that Nebuchadnezzar did and he wanted to do was to intimidate them. He intimidated them. If you were to look at verse five, we read that they were given a daily provision of the king's delicacies of wine, which he drank. Now, again, that doesn't sound like such a bad deal, right? Who doesn't like free food? I like, well, I like food. I like free food. I like meat. And the deal here is that, you know, even if, For example, you're with some friends and they serve you like their delicacies. Perhaps it's, you know, raw whale blubber, right? Um, The fat, you know, off of the whale. And and they love that food and they give that to you. And you're like, wow, I guess I'm going to have to eat this. And and you just eat it. They're going to watch you eat their food, right? It's kind of intimidating. That is intimidating and really There's an act of submission by eating it because you're giving in to something that they would like you to do. Or if you attend a fancy dinner and you sit down at the at the table and there's not just one plate but there's several plates there's lots of silverware to the left to the right and above the plate it gets a little confusing there's more than one cup you're kind of looking around thinking to yourself how am I going to know what you know thing to use you know and and then you you look around and and there's a beautiful tablecloth and and your napkin is embroidered and you look up and the chandelier emits just a perfect glow over the room and it's it's so beautiful it's awkward and everybody's speaking French and you just want want to run for the door, right? Because it's awkward. It's intimidating. It would be intimidating to me. If you want to take me on that dinner, let me know. So if you're a Jewish kid eating falafels in Jerusalem every day, now you're in the biggest city with all of these delicacies and all these perks, that would be intimidating. It's also interesting uh, to know that Leo Oppenheim, the scholar, uh, noticed that the food offered in the Babylonian court was first offered to the Babylonian gods and then brought to the king's table. So all that would be used to intimidate the Jewish minds, these young Jewish minds. They were probably sitting there thinking, I've never experienced this before. This is kind of overwhelming. This was first for the God. You know, it would be one of those things too where perhaps even this young man would sit back and say, well, you know, God didn't stop this from happening. Maybe he couldn't stop it from happening. And now here I am eating this food and living in this environment. It would be absolutely intimidating. Consider also that Babylon itself was intimidating. The Greek historian Herodotus would comment on the, the walls of the city being 80 feet thick, 320 feet tall, and 56 miles long. Uh, also, you know, if you were to walk in from the gate of Ishtar, you'd, you'd walk into a, an amazing environment. There would be 65 feet wide roads made out of limestone lined on the side flanked with red tiled sidewalks ornately decorated Uh, the river euphrates ran through the center of town and you would see one of the most magnificent palaces in the entire world one of the seven wonders of the world the jew excuse me the hanging gardens of babylon so any jewish teenager would be full of wonder it would be perhaps just a little bit like going from you know the bush to new york city where you look around and you think this is amazing it's kind of intimidating so those those are things he did he isolated he indoctrinated okay and he intimidated and then finally number four nebuchadnezzar 
redesignated. He, re- he redesignated them. He took away their most personal and private possession, their name, and gave them new names. This is social engineering at its finest. And by finest, I mean the ugliest. So the name Daniel, his Jewish name meant that God is my judge. His new name, Belshazzar, was may Bel protect the king. That was the meaning. So Bel was one of the chief deities of the Babylon. Hananiah meant beloved of the Lord, which was, uh, his new name was Shadrach, which meant illumined by Aku, which was their moon god. Michelle means who is like God, but the new name Meshach means who is like Aku, the moon god. And Azariah, his Jewish name means the Lord is my help. But then he was given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nebu. All these are pagan deities, one of the many pagan deities that the Babylonians worship. But what I want you to observe with me this morning is that these words were being erased. We were not allowed to say those words anymore in that culture. And the only words that would be allowed would be the words of a new culture. They were banning words, banning names. Does that sound familiar to you at all? So that's the predicament that they were in. Look with me at phase number two of this chapter. The predicament takes us to the second phase, the protest, the protest. So we read what we read, right? In verse eight, look at verse eight with me. The first word is but. The first word is but. And I think that's a good sign. But Daniel, I like this because it doesn't say and Daniel or soul Daniel or therefore Daniel, but it's but. How many of you like like that? Immediately there's opposition to the pressure, right? Uh, The pressure represented in that, you know, first seven verses is met with a but from Daniel, a negative conjunction. How many of you guys like a little bit of the negative conjunction? Thank thank you. There has to be a but. There has to be a pushback. I will not conform, and I will not conform. I will not do this. He is pushing back. So look at what it says in verse 8. But Daniel proposed in his heart, purposed in his heart rather, that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now notice that Daniel's choice, where does it begin? It begins with an inward conviction. That's it. That's where the choices of life are really made, deep on the inside. There's no doubt that after some soul searching, he came up with this choice. Now, I just want to give you three tips on some simplified soul searching. These aren't the, you know, the top, you know, I mean, there are other things that we could do, but look with me. Simplified soul searching. Number one, if you want to do what Daniel did, I would say recognize the decision you must make. You've got to recognize it. I I would even advocate that you name the decision that you've got to make. You're making decisions, by the way, every day. Unfortunately, where there should be conviction in our life and in our decision-making, there is often none present. That's why we get pushed around quite easily. Consider this also. Name the decision. Please name the decision. There should be no sleepwalking, no apathy, no passivity. We have to recognize the decision that we are forced to address in our own life. Number two, pray a prayer of consecration. You can say, God, if you want me to stick out, if you want me to stick up on this decision, please give me the courage. Lord, I am yours to do with as you see fit and as you please. See, I'm consecrating myself to God, not knowing his will. 
but affirming my commitment to him. That's good, right? I mean, just kidding. I didn't make that up. Well, I mean, I, I wrote it. I mean, but the truth is always out there. I mean, if you want to know God's will, he, he wants to know first if you're going to actually follow through and do it, right? That's why we have to do that. That's why we start there, because most of us really just want to go along to get along or get along to go along. You know what I'm saying, right? We choose conformity over consecration. I want to conform more than I want to consecrate myself to the Lord. Number three, hunker down with the Lord. Do whatever it takes to get alone with the Lord. And if you're listening, I believe that he will speak directly to you, speak to your heart, make his plans and purposes clear for your life. But you have to get to that spot where you can listen. It's not really about hearing. That's, that's going to come. But you've got to get your heart. You've got to get to that spot where you can actually start to listen. And I don't know what that looks like for you exactly. But for me, sometimes it's a struggle to get there. So let's sit back to Daniel. He's made a choice which is really good news. All that indoctrination, intimidation, isolation, and all that redesignation is met by Daniel's determination. And I believe I'm speaking to some folks that are determined in their hearts. You have a young teenage boy who's been abducted saying at this point, hey, listen, I'm not going to go any further. I'm not going to cross that line. So he's determined. He's purposed within his heart. So listen, the power to not conform to the culture around you is always an inside job. It always begins right inside here. And it happens when your decisions become your convictions. Anybody can make a decision and a choice, but when those decisions and choices become your defined nature, your conviction, this is who I am, it becomes a little different. You act a little different. You walk a little different. You are different. Because you've been called to be different. Now listen, the effectiveness of the rest of Daniel's life depends on this very moment. If he didn't make the right choice, Daniel would not make the right impact. And see, with your life, there's an impact for you to make. But there's also a choice you've got to make. This choice that he made on that day determined the man that he would become every day after that. You know, it was W.A. Criswell, not a perfect pastor, maybe not the pastor he should have been or could have been, but W.A. Criswell preached a good many truths. And he said this, all of life is filled with crises and decisions. There are right decisions, wrong decisions, high roads and low roads. And almost every day, there will be a fork in the road where you are today is due to the turn in the road you took yesterday. You are a product of your choices. You are where you are because of the choices you have made. And you and I, we have a lot more choices and a lot more decisions to make in our life. So your decisions must become your convictions. And for Daniel, what began as an inward conviction grew out into something that was mega important. But notice something else. It included a spiritual definition. Notice that Daniel doesn't see these delicacies offered to him as delicacies, right? Daniel sees these delicacies offered to him as defilement. Look at verse 8 with me. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. 
with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. I know what you're thinking. What's the big deal, man? Food is food, but not to Daniel. He's a Jewish kid, and according to Jewish law, there were certain kinds of foods that he was not able to eat. The food that he would be able to eat would be kosher food. And according to the Levitical laws, he couldn't even eat food that had been sacrificed to pagan gods. And the way the Babylonians prepared the food was not kosher. So there was no way he could go ahead and eat this with a clear conscience. And he says, I'm not going to do it. And then he says, I don't want the wine because the wine has been poured out on pagan altars. And the rest of the wine was drank undiluted. The Jews didn't drink undiluted wine. They would usually uh, dilute it 20 parts to one parts, 20 parts water and one part uh, wine to kill the germs. So the idea really but that something was offered to a foreign god that he would partake in and, and that it might you know, alter his conscious state and all that pagan revelry. He didn't want any part of that. He says, no, that's the line. He called those delicacies defilements. And I know what you're thinking. Well, when in Babylon, why not do what the Babylonians are doing? Your parents aren't around. The rabbis aren't around. Nobody's going to see, man, and you've got to be polite to the people who are hosting you. But Daniel wasn't looking for an excuse in his life because Daniel was living with purpose. It's the question, really, some of us need to wrestle with even even now. Probably, you younger folk, do you have the purpose outlined in your life? Because if you don't understand God's purpose for your life, you will always be looking for an excuse. And when you live with purpose, you don't look for an excuse. The only reason you look for an excuse is because you don't understand your purpose, the reason you're here in this life. So he had a purpose. He had a name. He had a goal. And he's basically saying, hey, listen, you can re-educate me. <laughs> you can isolate me. You can intimidate me. You can redesignate me. But I am not going to change because I know who I am and I know my God. Which brings me to a topic. What defiles you? There are all kinds of things in this world that taint us, that pollute us, corrupt us, and can contaminate us. The movies, the TV shows we binge on, the websites you go to, the places you frequent, the relationships that you're involved in. And those things, my friends, can take everything that God has planned for you and chuck it out the window. What I'm suggesting to you from Scripture is that you should develop the conviction to say no so that you will have the opportunity and occasion to say yes When you close the door to defilement, you open the door to development. What is it that God would like to develop you for? What is it that God would like to develop within you? You've got to probably close the door to defilement even now, even me, even you, even your neighbor, even your neighbor's neighbor. When you close that door to defilement, you open the door to development. You can say no to certain things so that the new opportunities God would like to present to you personally will be available to you. Now, all of that, my friends, begins within the heart. It all begins deep inside. It begins with the belief system, the mindset that, hey, listen, God is everywhere. God is always here. He is right here even now with me. See, Daniel understood that. Consider uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. It says, for your ways are in full view of the Lord. Do you feel a little conviction there? All of what we do is in full view of the Lord. And he examines your paths. 
my paths. Remember the story of Moses, right? Before he became the great Moses, the leader, right? He saw, you know, an Egyptian roughing up an Israelite. He, he got a little ticked off and he went over and he, he pulled them apart. And the Bible says he looked this way and he looked that way and then he killed that man, right? The only way he didn't look up was up, right? If he would have looked up, his actions would have been 100% different. And if you live that way, if you're looking just to see what other people are seeing you do, let me just be clear and just say that your religion will betray your relationship because it really isn't about this. You're more concerned about this. God's always looking, and Daniel knew that even as a young teenager. His, he's in Babylon saying, I know God's here. God was over there. God's here 1,600 miles away. So look with me at phase three, though. You know, we've covered, we've covered some ground. We've covered the predicament, the protest, and now I want to cover the petition. Look at verse 8 again. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and the wine. And he asked the chief official for permission. That's an important phrase. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should you see, why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Look at verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. At verse 12, this is an important word. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. So I guess it's a vegan diet. Oh my bad news right there. Then, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in, a, in, a, in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days. Now, now watch this. Daniel isn't reactive. Daniel is proactive. He's actually doing something here. He's not just resisting an order, right? He's requesting an alternative, which is key. So please, no, really, first of all, in verse 8, he says, Daniel asked. He made the request. He asked. It doesn't say that Daniel demanded or that Daniel picketed or that Daniel yelled and protested and screamed and defamed and, you know, burned a building down or something like that, which, while it might have sounded fun and might have been tempting, that's not what he did. He asked. He asked. He was showing honor. Look at verse 12. That's, what's the first word? Please. Please, please test your servants for 10 days. See, Daniel's not just some holier-than-thou kid saying, hey, listen, you filthy pagans, you don't know what you're doing. He didn't say that. He was respectful. He was nice. He was honoring. And God brought him into the respect and the honor of the head official. Did you know what Proverbs chapter 16, verse says? It says, when the Lord takes pleasure in anyone's way, he causes their enemies to make peace with them. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's what we see happening here. So yes, be, be, be a nonconformist. But by all means, just be a nice nonconformist, right? Can I get an amen? Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. So it's true. Some Christians, some, some preachers seem a little angry, right? 
But I think Ben Franklin was right. You know, you'll catch more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. So here's my, here's my thought. You need to be winsome if you want to win some. You've got to be winsome to be, if you want to win some. This is key in life, really. Be appealing. Be engaging. Be winning. Be nice. And that's a stretch for some of us, especially when I'm driving. And if I've cut you off lately, I'm sorry. But the truth of the matter is that you have to be winsome if you want to win some. So Daniel asked, and Daniel said, please, here's an alternative. Let's do a test. So I don't want you to forget that Daniel was not silent. He spoke up. He dug his heels in. He didn't agree, all right? He had a line that he would not cross against all that onslaught of Babylonian culture, right, and nonsense. He understood that he had to stick out and stick up. It's not that he's going to change Babylon because because he won't. Babylon will not change because of Daniel's ministry there. Sure, in chapter 4, the king will confess that the Lord is God, uh, but they're going to continue on in their pagan practices, and the corruption of their country will not stop, and the judgment of the Lord will rest upon Babylon. So he's not going to change Babylon, but that's not what this is about. That wasn't Daniel's goal. This is about not letting Babylon change him. That's the key. And I think that's kind of important to say in this time, especially in this day, especially in this age, especially with everything that you and I were probably facing. If your agenda becomes that I've got to take America back, I believe you're probably going to be disappointed. That ship may have sailed. Now, there are certain things we can do, we should do, hold on to, and do more of, for sure. Absolutely. There are things that we absolutely must do as responsible Americans because we love our country so very much. But it's really not about trying to get America back to where she was. It's about the church standing strong in the middle of this confrontation. So as a pastor, I'm just going to be honest. I'm concerned more for God's people. It's time for the church to refuse to conform to the culture. Right? It's time for the church to refuse to go along with the agenda. It's time for the church to refuse letting the culture tell us how to raise our children and how to live our lives. It's time to stick up and stick out. Their message really to us, I don't believe, could be more clear. They, they want you to stay in your lane. They want you to stay in your church, stay in your cubicle, stay in your corner of the world. They don't get involved in our issues. That's really the message. The interesting thing is that they have no qualms about getting involved in our issues, sticking their nose in our tent, mandating all sorts of things to us. And all the while, they'll call for a separation of church and state, never acknowledging the origin of that phrase and never giving up the effort for the state to impose things on the church. And if we don't give in, they resort to humiliation, vilification, and censorship. And I believe this with all my heart, that we are now in a Daniel moment. We have unprecedented pressure all around us, so we need to pray for the same kind of wisdom that Daniel had in his moment, right? But there are certain things I'm just going to refuse to do. And I'll do it respectfully, and I'll do it with a smile on my face, and they might lock me up, but I'll make jokes, and I'll do it with class, and hopefully you'll come visit me in prison. Thank you. <laughs> and I know, I know there are some folks who see this differently, and I, and I don't want to challenge, well, 
Lots of times, good Bible-believing Christians use the Bible to support a very different perspective. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 is one of those verses that they, they, they cite. It says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Amen. And the authorities that exist have been established by God. But let me just say this about that verse. We do not remotely fit that verse's context. It was written to a Roman church living in a pagan empire. The Roman Empire's laws, traditions, and institutions were absolutely corrupt. Their laws were built on pagan assumptions. Their emperor was an evil dude. These were their governing authorities. The church would bring change over the course of many hundreds of years. But in that moment, this is what they had to work with. And Paul's main concern was planting churches, which is something we should probably be very concerned with ourselves. So my point, though, is that when the American Christian equates the same level of authority to our elected officials as the Roman church did with the emperor and their pagan laws, that believer is ignoring the true authority to which we have been instructed to submit The actual authority is our Constitution, the Constitution of the United States. The highest civil magistrate in our land is not a human, but it is a document. And when an elected official disobeys the existing authority, that is not okay. Not just because the official is transgressing against the universal authority that governs us, our Constitution. They are sinning against God's truth found in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let everyone, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. And finally, I'll say this, and I'll move on. When we submit to rebellion, we partake in the same sin. So moving on, we've got the predicament, the protest, the petition, and finally the payoff. Did things pay off? They absolutely did. If you're wondering, what did Daniel get out of this? This is pretty good. At verse 15, it says, at the end of 10 days, they look healthier and better nursed than any of the young men who ate the royal food. One version says their features appeared better and fatter in flesh. I wish that was me. I could use a little, you know. Anyway, now typically, that's not a compliment, but in this situation it is. Look at verse 16. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were drinking and gave them vegetables instead. So I I guess Daniel became a very popular guy after that. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Isn't that amazing? Do you think God could use you in that way? I think he could, absolutely. Look at verse 19. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service and every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them 10 times or 10 hands better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. And then finally, it wraps up with this. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So I find all that interesting. We could go roughshod over a lot of that. 
But I just want to throw this out. We believe that Daniel came to Babylon as a young teenager because he lives through the entire 70-year captivity into his later years. And for him to live 70 years in Babylon, he must have been a teenager when he got there because the introduction of King Cyrus is in 536 B.C. So from 605 to 536, through the entire captivity, Daniel has influence, right? He has influence in King Nebuchadnezzar's life in chapter 2, 3, and then in 4, he introduces him to the God of heaven, right? And then he influences Belshazzar in chapter 5. You remember the handwriting on the wall incident. That was Daniel. He was there for that. All the way through Cyrus, the Medo-Persian empire that takes over uh, the Babylonians. And I'm going to add something to this that Maybe we don't talk about very often, but I I would say that Daniel's influence went even beyond those 70 years because years later, centuries, centuries later, centuries later, this is mind blowing to me. It says that the wise men from the east showed up in Jerusalem saying, we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. These are the magi that came to worship the newborn Jesus, the newborn Messiah. It's amazing to me. The Magi were Babylonian priests from the court of the Babylonian king in Babylon, then the Medo-Persian Empire. The big question is, how on earth would Babylonian priests know to look for a Jewish king unless some guy had told them about it and passed that information along? In fact, if you look at the book of Daniel, the theme of the book of Daniel the Jewish king who will rule the world. That's the theme, really. Years later, they were still being influenced by Daniel. I believe that God would like to take your influence and allow it to spin out hundreds of years, even from now, no matter where we end up as a country, no matter where the world ends up. I believe in my heart of hearts that God would like to extend your influence beyond anything you could think. You could imagine on a timeline or even on a geography. So here's the takeaway this morning. Go against the flow. The flow is pretty hard in our life. The cultural flow, the political flow, the moral, the musical flow, everything is flowing against us. And may I just remind you, only dead fish float downstream. You don't fit in. You shouldn't fit in. You need to stick out and stick up. And I want to close by reading, if the worship team will please come. I want to close by reading to you something that was found from the 1920s, 1930s from a missionary who served in Zimbabwe. He was martyred for his faith in Christ. And he wrote this. He says, I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have, been stepped, I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his, and I won't look back. Let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, cheap living, and dwarfed goals. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road may be narrow. My way rough. My companions few. But my guide is reliable. And my mission is clear. I will not be bought. 
compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy or ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, or let up till I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. If you and I live like that, the world will not know what to do with that boldness. The world won't know how to handle believers like that. That will not conform. That aren't afraid to stick out and stick up. That's what that missionary wrote, right? And they killed him. But let's be honest. That's the way we should want to go out. You don't fit in. You shouldn't fit in. Stick out. Stick up. Would you stand with me? At this moment, we're going to enter into our response time. You have an opportunity to respond not to Anthony, but to what the Holy Spirit is doing on the inside of you. Perhaps there was a meager word. Perhaps there was a verse. Perhaps he's melting something that was previously hard. Maybe he's clarifying what was confused. I, I don't know. But I think you know what he's talking to you about. Today should be different. You should be different. I should be different. The calling on your life is so unique and it's, it's powerful. Think about Daniel one more time used hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later to pull the Magi, the wise men, right into the face of Jesus, their Savior, our Savior. How might God use your life to pull others into the face of Jesus? That they might find him as their Savior. It's quite a thought. Lord, we submit to you in this moment. Holy Spirit, work. Work on the inside. These altars are open. Please come.
Lord, we recognize what you've done on the inside of us, and we thank you. We thank you for the work you're doing, the freedom you're delivering, the purpose you're igniting within our hearts. We look forward to the future, no matter what it might hold. For you, Lord, are our God, and it's to you that we are submitting. For, Lord, there is no one else, and there's nothing else. You're the only one. In your name, Jesus, we pray.
Nothing is a sacrifice Use me how you want to, God Have your throne within my heart pray one more time with me, Lord, we are absolutely available. And Lord, in case there's just somebody here, Lord, who who has yet to relinquish a portion of their heart that is unavailable, I pray, Lord, that you would pull them into a moment, even now as we talk with you, and you just very clearly tap on it. You say, I I need that little spot in your heart. I want all of it. You're my son. You're my daughter. Come close to me and I'll show you that by me occupying that area within you, that little spot in your heart, you'll live a better life, a closer life with me. And one that will provide for you the greatest, the greatest life you could ever live. So if he's tapping on that one little spot, give it to him, my friend. You won't regret it. So Lord, we are available. We thank you, Lord, for this life, for the meager few years that we are here and then getting to come home to you. Yes, Lord, count on us. Sign us up. And so Lord, give us the courage to stick out and stick up. We know we don't fit in, God, and we count that a joy and a privilege because we're 100% available to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, I'd like to invite you, if you have children in childcare, don't forget them there. And, and if you'd like some extra prayer, there is, of course, those of us who would love to pray with you. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope to see you next week.